Section 77. What is software bloat, really? File, edit, view, insert, tools, window, help. The common top-level commands of Office applications. In this and the next five sections, the story of the Office 12, that's Office 2007, unfolds. This is really the story of the development of the new user interface for Office, which became known as the Ribbon. To many readers, this will seem much smaller today than it was at the time, and that is understandable. I hope to put this in work in, in the context of the day so readers can see just how big a deal this really was. The graphical interface was the paradigm of computing. The menu bar was the manifestation of that. The addition of graphical buttons, like toolbars, was a big advance and clearly the biggest addition to the WIMP paradigm. One of the things about a common tool set, however, is that over time, all applications get commoditized or at least appear to be the same. Everything looked like a big collection of buttons. That means two tools in the same category, like two spreadsheets, will converge in how they look. And to the market, they will be perceived as interchangeable. The perceived commoditization is one half of the story of Office 12. The other half is something without precedent figuring out how to make our extremely sophisticated products usable by hundreds of millions of people. A car typically has a dozen controls one needs to know how to use it. Microwaves, televisions, thermostats, and so on are usually far less than that. Regardless of the reason, Office has thousands of commands. Making sense of those is an impossible ask of customers. So what did we do? This section is an overview of the specifics of bloat and the history. The next section presents some of the history of the UI design of Office and then the design of Office 12 over the remaining sections. These sections will be a bit shorter than some of the previous ones after today. In 2001, Jon Stewart, the legendary host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central, performed a hilarious and brutal takedown of a redesign of CNN's headline news show. In the segment, he took to task the departure from the traditional talking head, as epitomized by Walter Cronkite and the Evening News, and Jon Stewart. He mocked Generation Y, eventually called Millennials, for favoring a seeming onslaught of disparate information all at once, rather than one camera and a single story at a time. Stewart referred to a new look that, quote, offers a great way to find out everything without the pressure of retaining anything. The Stuart video is available online. The punchline, almost 20 years later, is that the redesign Stuart mocked became standard across every medium, web, broadcast, cable, Bloomberg, YouTube, today's phone apps. We can bemoan such a change or accept the fact that people prefer consuming information differently than they did a generation earlier. The reality back in 2001 was that people were leaving TV news in droves in favor of on-demand, concise, and always available internet-based news displayed on crowded homepages. At the same time, the TV show 24 was considered both a breakthrough and critically panned for a similar departure from the tradition. The show was fast-paced, had a complex narrative, and featured dozens of characters moving in and out of each other's storylines. Critics said the narrative was overly complex, the same generational change was afoot, and the MTV generation was raised on fast-paced video, clip dialogue, and rapid cutting between scenes. To this new audience, 24 seemed entirely consumable, 
The single-camera sitcom was in its twilight. Design, whether functional or aesthetic, is a product of the context of the times. When contexts change, meaning the people and their needs and the available tools and technologies, designs need to change as well. File, edit, view, insert, tools, window, help. Like the catchy lyrics to a well-worn pop song, in Office, we knew these top-level menus appearing consistently in each of the applications. We spent almost 10 years convincing, cajoling, and aligning each other around these words as though they were carved in stone. In fact, these words were the product of compromise. First, a compromise between Microsoft and Apple on the original Macintosh applications, and then a compromise between our new Windows applications and our Macintosh applications. Finally, there was a compromise across all of Office to reach consistency. As with many compromises, no one was particularly happy with the result, and there were plenty of exceptions, but nobody was all that unhappy either. It wasn't perfect, but it was our menu structure, and our customers liked it. So much so, it was widely emulated across the industry. That made it carved in stone. It was like so many arbitrary design choices that somehow develop a lore of great design, like QWERTY keyboards or the park reverse neutral drive in a car. While rather adaptable creatures, humans tend to react poorly to change imposed upon them. A new stoplight, a new layout for a website, or the most heinous of all modern changes, a new software user interface for an existing product. Unexpected or imposed changes are viewed at best as arbitrary and at worst as bad, or incredibly bad. It is exceedingly rare in the world of software to see existing users embrace major changes to mature products. Consider something that most of us today would think of as a rather benign, a change in the layout and typography of a print-based magazine. Magazines would devote a few pages to explaining the design and the rationale, or perhaps even TV commercials, as The Economist did with their 2001 redesign. Such bold, they, they always called them bold, redesigns would often become the subject of weeks of letters to the editor complaining about the failings of the effort and calling for a return to the old design followed by the inevitable subscription cancellations, all for the print-based layout of a magazine. Even if a product makes it through a big change, there often remains an undercurrent harkening back to the good old days for quite some time. Whether it is simply conservatism or, as some express, a true loss of efficiency or effectiveness with the product, change is hardly ever free of controversy. Yet we live in a constant state of change. What is it that separates the changes that cause an uproar from the changes that happen with little notice? Technology is changing all around. Consumer behavior and work norms are regularly evolving. Competitors with new products arise frequently. Often competitors with a fancy new design might even compete directly with a small portion of a larger established products with a tired design. Perhaps the new product even garners outside attentions because of that new design less so than the features it brings along. Failing to change remains the biggest mistake technology companies can make. And as, soon, and as I'd soon learn, failing to change correctly is the second biggest mistake technology companies make. There are no rules or books or guidelines that govern how much a product can change and when. There are many books telling you if you don't change, you're doomed. There are also a lot of books telling stories of changes going haywire. A note to readers, this work is both of these. Office became a bit like the old evening news. Not so much Cronkite CBS, but more like CNN. 
It was ubiquitous. It was reliable and predictable. It did not draw much attention to itself. Younger people knew about it, but it didn't talk about it the way older people did. It was comfortable. Still, each release was more successful financially than the previous and rated higher in customer satisfaction. Our customer base grew, and they continued to be happier with each release. The Office brand anchored several important traits of Microsoft, representing easy to use and professional. But comments about bloat continued unabated. Was it insider talk? Were people, people overall happy, and it was the beltway of tech journalism searching for something, anything at all, to criticize in the face of all the success? How could customers be so satisfied and the business be growing if it were making increasingly bloated products? We theorize that analysts, reviewers, and reporters, those most typically calling out bloat, were users of a small subset of Office compared to typical knowledge workers. One reviewer of a major national outlet would not even review Excel because of the view that most people didn't need a spreadsheet. As we discussed when we were creating Office Lite, a pervasive view existed that the product suffered in usability and quality because it had too many features. Specifically, there were too many features for how any individual said they needed in a product. Too many features led to a complex experience and bugs, so went the theory. Another theory was that PCs, not just Office, were becoming increasingly fragile and flaky. Bloat might be a PC problem, we thought, and the ubiquity of Office simply an easy way to express the problem. Three factors contributed to a feeling of a declining PC experience, sort of like a car that needed to get a tune-up to rid the engine of noises or reduce the squishiness in the ride and to improve overall performance. First, PCs were decreasingly interesting to purchase. The newest and best PCs lacked the excitement and budget that made consumers want to rush out and buy a new one. The pace of improvement in hardware arguably slowed, but so did the pace of software. By 2004, we were three years into Windows XP with no new release of Office in sight. Longhorn was perennially under development and without a new Windows, the need for a new PC was minimal and certainly not worth the pain of moving files and programs to a new computer. It is important to note that buying a new PC was the fastest way to reset the PC experience, cleaning out all the gunk. And without a PC purchase, such a spring cleaning was kind of technically impossible. Second, the rise of the internet turned everyone into a software downloader. Every first Tuesday of the month, Microsoft sent updates to hundreds of millions of PCs to keep them secure. Product changes that closed holes that could be exploited by malware and viruses. The creation of Patch Tuesday, as it was called colloquially, was rooted in trustworthy computing and was a major innovation in system security and reliability. The seemingly constant stream of product updates, however, only served to emphasize the fragility of the PC. The required and poorly timed reboots wasted time, or worse, and left a bad impression of PC reliability while also providing great explanations for a PC slowing down or failing to restart. Users were downloading software constantly as well. It wasn't only the next version of a browser that remained interesting, but the latest media player software, software control to control the newest device to plug into a PC, utilities making the aging Windows XP easier to use, and more. From Napster to BitTorrent to Adobe Acrobat, plus an onslaught of games, there was an endless stream of software available to download. Software installed on Windows, though, had free reign over the system. 
Installed software could interfere with performance, memory usage, battery life, or even conflict with other previously installed programs, causing all sorts of mysterious problems. Tech enthusiasts had names for these problems. DLL Hell referred, referenced programs that failed to run if the wrong version of a file known as a DLL existed on the PC. BitRot was the slow decay of the overall system. My favorite was registry corruption, which was a mostly meaningless term referring to the slowing performance and potential fragility of a specific part of the operating system due to adding too many programs with too many settings. These conditions led to a new class of software designed to clean PCs, freshen them up, and recondition them. But these utilities only further exasperated any problems and served to reinforce and accelerate the problems that PCs faced over time. Finally, PCs in the enterprise or at work were locked down by system administrators with an arsenal of software to secure the machines. These included firewalls, antivirus, virtual private networking, not to mention intrusive scans and analysis of the PC, slowing down every work session, especially just logging on. The fragility and risk to typical users on PCs created the need for more software and lockdown and ever more invasive software to mitigate these risks. A typical office worker faced a choice of a lethargic PC at work with disabled capabilities or a PC at home that became increasingly flaky as members of a household continued to pile on an assortment of downloaded software. As real as all of these were, none of them were particularly relevant to Office, which by and large was well behaved. We needed to dig deeper. Bloat was our biggest competitive problem. Office still lacked a major competitor, but increasingly the cost and heft of Office were viewed as liabilities or at least targets. Star Office was free, and continued to be an annoyance to us. Piracy of older versions of Office was far more of a competitor, and by virtue of its age was more fragile and prone to viruses and security problems, thus worsening the perception of Office. Startups were beginning to experiment with the latest browsers and the technology pioneered by Microsoft known as AJAX. That's an acronym, A-J-A-X. A style of programming web pages so they behaved more like typical Windows programs with interactivity but with all the benefits of simply being a web page in a browser. Across the web, there were startups building simple word processors and drawing programs this way, and even a few spreadsheets and presentation programs. Intuit, the makers of Quicken, shipped a browser-based database to compete with Microsoft Access called QuickBase, and it won editor's choice for workgroup software from a major magazine. Microsoft had invented Ajax for Outlook Web Access, but the depth of features made it useful for only occasional mail and not the all-day transaction processing style used in Outlook. Ajax seemed far off for building a full-fledged productivity tool. Nevertheless, Office was investing heavily in making portions of the product browser-native, such as pivot tables in Excel and databases in Access, in addition to Word and PowerPoint documents. The question in the air and among tech elites was chilling. Was Office finished? And were the alternatives to Office good enough? This phrase, good enough, drove me crazy. It was as though there was something about productivity software that people should just settle for what gets enough of the job done today. Like a middle-aged person fighting off what seemed to be inevitable weight gain, was it slowing metabolism or was there actually a change in behavior? I used to ask rhetorically, is Word, fill in the version number, the peak achievement for humankind when it comes to writing tools? 
the snide comments about bloat were getting kind of old. The internet only served to magnify what used to only surface in a review. Along with, along with terms like microsloth, Microsoft, where the S was a dollar sign, and Windows, spelled with a Z, every time a tech writer mentioned Office, positive or not, a chorus of bloatware filled the comment section, or as we saw earlier, old-fashioned letters to the editor. In the online version, there are some of these uh, comments and that you can see about Windows and Microsoft. Bloat was an amorphous concept with numerous manifestations. We need to get some actionable definition if we were to make progress. The heart and soul of the brand was at stake. In spite of bloat, we heard endless requests for new, new features. At one point, we compiled the most recent requests, and something like 90% of the requests were features already in the product. Ouch. What really got under our collective skin was the constant whine that Office had too many features, most of them unused. We worked hard on all those features, and every one of them was traced to solving some problem customers asked about. At least that's what we'd tell ourselves. This bugged us because the data was entirely conclusive. Most of Office was used, but no one person used the entire product. As if to emphasize this point, most people didn't know or care what buttons they clicked on or menus they chose so long it was as it was working for them. So that meant when asked, did you use feature X, most people couldn't recall. To a skeptical press or IT manager, and they all were, that meant unused features. We measured usage for a decade, first with the laborious and entirely manual process of the instrumented version described earlier. With the arrival of the internet and Watson technology, we extended the instrumented product to every office customer everywhere. Enabling telemetry of the product was via opt-in only, totally anonymous, and no identifiable information was collected. Several data points were recorded. What commands were used, if a command was invoked by a keyboard shortcut, menu, or toolbar, how long an operation took, and importantly, what sequences of commands were executed. Things we guessed at 15 year old years earlier were knowable in what could be called a census of usage. While some people didn't opt in, a large enough majority of users did, meaning an unbiased and large sample of the population, and provided us with data upon which to decide how to evolve the product. We called the extensions of Watson, previously used for crashes and system hangs, to usage data, Software Quality Monitoring, SQM, or SQUIM. SQUIM was the buzz of the hallway and became the lingua franca for the program management team. SQUIM was how we settled debates over who, who used what and how much and what was most important. The insights gained from SQUIM were as exhaustive as the volumes of charts, tables, and graphs that filled our collective inboxes. The online version of this story contains some examples of SQUIM data charts and tables. Decades later, the idea of using data to design products is a well-understood approach. At the turn of the millennium, it was a new and radical idea and a strategic advantage for us. We focused on using data to figure out how to get things done faster and with fewer clicks. Websites were using data to figure out how to get people to buy more online, read certain articles, or click on advertisements. Here we were, using data to help people use our product less. What we were learning with Squim, however, was that people were futzing a great deal with Office. While the most common commands were obvious, like print, save, copy, paste, and bold, and a few others, with astonishing frequency, users were hitting undo, redo, undo sequences, trying to figure out how something might work. 
Seemingly common operations like creating a chart in Excel or table in Word were tiresome and endless sequences of this trial and error. A trivial task in PowerPoint, such as aligning two shapes in a drawing, was done by nudging shapes with an arrow keys and eyeing the result, rather than using built-in alignment tools that were just a few clicks away. Too many clicks, apparently. We called the futzing of documents document debugging, and it created a frustration that the product was powerful yet overwhelming. People believed a specific result was achievable, but getting from point A to B seemed impossible or unlearnable. The idea that documents were being debugged mirrored the complex dialog boxes for adjusting formatting. These user interface elements had incredible series of buttons, measurements, and options available with no indication of what to use when. The picture positioning dialog in Word features a, featured a dizzying array of horizontal and vertical alignments with many options most grayed out and no simple way to indicate a desire to stop moving everything around on the page. The online version contains examples of some of these dialogues from Office 2003. There were routine offenders, like trying to fix the spacing between paragraphs or position an image inside of Word, or the impossibility of altering a chart in Excel. The mere mention of bullets and numbering would be followed invariably by a groan. Arguably, the worst offenders were the infrequently used idioms, creating labels used for mailing holiday cards or the one time when a table called for alternating bands of shading and rows. Inevitably, a person sat there looking at the screen, trying to recall how they did it a year ago. None of this was new. A decade earlier, I was taking notes at a planning offsite with the systems team. The laptop I was using was connected to a projector so everyone on the team could see the notes. In a quick, quick sequence of keys, I created a blank page, a heading, followed by subcategories and bullets. I didn't leave the keyboard. My breakout group was watching me and insisted on knowing what sorcery I had conjured to create an outline in such a trivial way, it seemed. This was typical for anyone skilled in Office. Every plane trip was a usability test opportunity for Office. Watching a seatmate analyze sales in Excel while simultaneously using a calculator was typical and spectacularly difficult to watch. The daily work of using Office to create great-looking documents was filled with moments of, if I could only figure out how. A common task for many, something like a product description page with a photo and text flowing around it, was impossibly confounding. The specific user interface for these and other scenarios are an array of options, terms, and choices that are meaningless at best and destructive at worst. Even finding the right place to make a change was a leap in logic for typical users who did not have the benefit of a software design expertise or the constraints like we had of just trying to figure out where to squeeze it into the product. Offenders such as the paragraph formatting or picture layout in Word or the Excel cell format options appear to most people with the same level of complexity seen in a cockpit of an airplane. It was as painful for us as it was for customers. We sincerely believe we've made things easier over the years. We had come a long way since the first reviews of Word 1.0 for MS-DOS in the 1980s that called Word difficult to use. We came to realize that after a decade, our user interface mapped directly to the implementation of the product, literally the data structures and structure of the code, and not to the results that a person was aiming to achieve. This was an incredibly important insight for us to internalize. It was not as though we were the first people to stumble upon the idea of making computers easier to use. It was that after more than a good run of nearly two decades of trying to make the products using a graphical interface easier, we needed a new approach. 
The irony was that the graphical interface itself, with its friendly mouse and menus, was supposed to finally make computers easier to use. Instead, more features and capabilities went underutilized, and over time, no one was around to remember just how impossible that early software was. The online version contains a segment of the review of Word 1.0. The earliest days of the graphical interface and the pioneering belief of Office was that consistency was the fastest path to easy. This was especially the case because Office was rooted in a collection of historically different applications. If a customer invested the time in learning one module of Office, then consistency made it easier to learn the next and the one after that. An entire generation of reviews and industry analysis, and even my own competitive analysis of Lotus Smart Suite, dove deep into consistency as a positive benefit. When computers were new to the world, it might have been that consistency felt safe and easy. Even IBM documented a consistent interface for the OS2 operating system called Common User Access, CUA, that was to span mainframes to PCs with a consistent interface. It came with a rack of design books for developers to follow. They didn't really ever follow it. The internet changed this for everyone um, by being wildly inconsistent. The web quickly evolved to a cacophony of user interfaces. The text and pictures with blue links to navigate the web transformed into an environment as diverse as a stack of Gen X magazines. The important lesson for us was that people didn't notice there were sites that were difficult and sites that were easy, but people adapted to adapting. There were no powers calling for a standard interface for the entire internet. As the essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. This saying was used in an influential academic paper on the pros and cons of user interface consistency that appeared in 1989. Several times as a program manager, I made copies of this paper and distributed it. The online version contains a reference to that paper. While the Office Assistant was the last major attempt and failure to make software easier, by Office 2003, the product was filled with a series of widgets and affordances designed to surface features in a more helpful manner. Office became a stage for every designer and program manager idea to make things easier at a micro level, one edition at a time. What started off as something simple like a keyboard shortcut and dialog boxes ballooned into context menus, wizards, panes, and toolbars, all customizable, floating, docking, and resizable. The next section will detail some of this history. The online version contains a cartoon coincidentally named Office 2004, and it shows a really wild user interface that really looks like what people think Office looks like today. Bloat wasn't that products did too much. The marginal cost in dollars, memory, disk space, or vague notions of complexity, that really wasn't bloat. We tried reducing bloat by hiding features as discussed previously, but that only added to the mystery of the product. Mac, Windows, Office, all went through periods of simple means fewer and tried mechanisms such as short menus and simple mode or adaptive toolbars as we've shown. But that frustrated or confused people. No one really wanted to use a simple mode because there was always one command missing that was needed. So simple mode became a complicated way to do that one thing that made someone's work unique. We began to consider that bloat was the inability to feel mastery of a product. Knowing that the product was capable of something, well, seemingly impossible to figure out how to make it do something. We needed to learn more about this theory we had. Two important lessons from product planning and research solidified our collective view of bloat 
and form the foundation of our future designs. The first lesson emerged from sifting through usage data. Cameron Turner, email Cameron T, and others studied the depth and breadth of usage of PCs, how many programs, how often, and also featured within off features within Office, what features were used, when, and how much with what frequency. Cameron T was an early PowerPoint program manager hired from Stanford. He later left Microsoft to start a company focused entirely on analyzing software usage, long before data science was a hot topic. In the online version are some of the slides that Cameron T made highlighting usage in Office. Watson Crash Reports trained the team to work well with the 80-20 rule, and Cameron applied the same analysis to features and commands used across Office programs. So looking at features used by everyone, those who opted into the telemetry, 80% of the users shared two commands, copy and paste. So bear with me here. Said a different way, copy and paste were the only two commands used by 80% of users. <laughs> Finally, in other words, even at the most basic level, people use the products in different ways, which was really counterintuitive for most observers. At the same time, there were many commands that most people used, such as copy, paste, save, and print. Even then, commands that were not used by even a majority of people, such as open from the file menu, indicating that a good deal of work happened by opening email attachments or from folders on a desktop. So when critics generalized about feature usage in Office, we learned they were almost always wrong. Importantly, and also counterintuitively, Nearly all the commands in the product were used by at least someone somewhere. There was not a lot of dead weight in the product, even accounting for accidental usage or the random case where it was clear a given customer was just trying everything. The histogram of feature usage was steep. There was a small set of commands that represented 80% or more of the clicks and a long Pareto tail for thousands of other commands. But less than 5% of the commands were used just a single digit percentage of time. The second point was obvious to those on the front lines. With customers, technical account managers, customer support, and our own sustained engineering teams, routinely they saw what most would call esoteric use. The breadth of usage was a major selling point of the product as well. At the high level, while someone might not create a spreadsheet model, that same person might receive one in email. At a deeper level, most in a company might not use a feature such as track changes in Word but their lawyer would, and contracts or legal letters might arrive via email for review. Rarely used features became part of the work of others. This network of usage was a key advantage of Office and a significant reason behind our ability to win corporate-wide enterprise agreements. Just as the crash data became an obsession with development and testing, the SQUIM usage data became an obsession with the designers of our product. In fact, though, developers also loved SQUIM data. It gave them a way to push back on program management when they thought spending energy on a feature was a low-yield effort. The second lesson was about how individuals experienced Office. In parallel, Tim Briggs, email T. Briggs, was one of the early user researchers to join the Office team. He began to employ then-sophisticated eye-tracking studies with volunteer test subjects in our labs. In eye-tracking studies, the test subjects sat in front of a PC and performed a series of typical scenarios. Special cameras were trained on their eyes, monitoring where on the screen they looked. 
A program manager or designer watching the test saw a typical PC screen with Word or Excel running, but with a little dot flying around the screen representing the subject's eye focus. The test subjects drew, the software drew tracking lines like a route across the screen and compiled statistics on the amount of eye movement, total gaze time, or even how much a subject seemed to look around trying to find something. Rocket science at the time. The online version has a video showing these eye scan tests at work. The results of this technique on Office 2003 were shocking. For basic tasks, if people didn't know what to do, they scanned the entire screen in a seemingly random pattern, often for many seconds. They played hide-and-seek with menus and toolbars as they searched for something to do. The test software generated a heat map, a color-coded view of the computer screen showing where the subject looked most frequently. Deep red for the hot areas looked at the most, all the way to blue and white where subjects looked the least. Office 2003 screens looked like a sea of solid red across the main toolbars and menus. Our test subjects looked literally everywhere for a long time. Our user interface, carefully crafted over a decade, was in no way helpful. It was bloated. Ages ago, in ancient Microsoft history, there was a debate on the original apps team about what it means for something to be a bug. Is it a crash? Is it data loss? Is it a typo and an error message and so on? Out of that, we created a notion of bug severity, a measure for how serious a bug might be from losing all data all the way to a simple cosmetic issue. However, when it came to talking about bugs with product support or ultimately customers, the definition of a bug was very simple. A bug is any time the software does not do what a customer expects it to. This definition created a discipline of documenting everything reported about a product and always making sure every issue was looked at, even if a code change didn't result. The key lesson was how helpful an expansive definition was. In the past experiences with bloat, we only focused on two measures. First, we tried to reduce the user interface surface area by simply hiding commands behind context menus, um, even, even short, full, full and short menus or even toolbars to some degree. Second, we spent countless cycles reducing the amount of disk space and memory consumed by Office. And we did that to reduce the notion that Office was big and slow. These are both bloat, but that's a very narrow and technical definition, one that is engineering focused and not particularly useful to customers. It didn't really matter if the product used too much memory or disk space, as those seemed like symptoms of the whole computing experience. In the eyes of customers in practice, bloat comes from the fact and I'm using the word fact on purpose, that Office does so many things that customers just assume the product can do whatever they need it to do. Despite that fact, customers have no idea how to make the product do what they need. This feeling of helplessness that is what leads to frustration. And that's what it means to deliver a bloated product. It did not matter how many ease of use features we added, all that did was compound the problem of too many places to click. What good is a new wizard or a task pane if a person has no idea how to access that, or if accessing it will even yield the desired result? Bloat is owning a product that you cannot master. No one felt they could master Office. How is it that Office managed, managed to get to this point, and when did it become the problem?